You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Venizio, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. I want you to think about that. For God, at that time, it was his provision for the human race if they would have taken advantage of it. Unfortunately, the only people who did take advantage of it was Noah and his immediate family. But I want you to think about it. That was God's provision for salvation, right? And also their provision and a way for them to escape judgment. Now, I want you to think about it in the relationship to Jesus Christ. Today, Pastor Mike points out the symbolic relationship between Noah's Ark and Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus taught that He is the only way we can be saved from our sins, the Ark of Noah's day was the only way to be saved from the flood. And just like in the days of Noah, we all have a choice. Will we choose to surrender to Christ and be saved from the consequences of our sin? Or will we go on in our own way and perish like the people killed by the flood. God has made known the options before us, but the choice is ours. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of Genesis chapter 7 as he begins his message, Noah and the Ark of God, Genesis. Genesis chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. Let's read that, and then we'll break that down for you. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household. Behold, I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female, Also seven each of birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters were upon the earth. And so Noah, with his sons, his wife, his sons' wives, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds and of everything that creeps upon the earth. Two by two, they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after the seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, 
and the windows of heaven were open, and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now on the very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of the sons with them entered the ark. And every beast after its kind, all the cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, of all flesh, and which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Now, think about this. I mean, this whole narrative that we've just read, verses 1 through 16, what an unbelievable scene. And if you think about it, it's actually the climax of 120 years of God warning the human race about his judgment that was going to come upon them unless they turned from their sins. And they had now 120 years to hear that message and, in fact, turn from their sins. But they didn't. Now, just in case you're wondering, well, Pastor Mike, how bad did it actually get that God had to intervene in the affairs of man. I mean, just a few short chapters ago, after he had created the physical universe and all that was contained within it, he said, it is good. It is good. It is good. And just everywhere he looked, he said, he pronounced that it was good. But now it's gotten really bad. So exactly how bad did it get before God had actually repented of ever creating mankind? And he was going to do away with them completely. Well, to answer that question, you got to go back to chapter 6. And this was a part of our text in one of our previous messages. But in chapter 6 and verse 5, think about this now. And tell me if this doesn't sound like our current situation upon the earth today. That is apart from the church, at least. But notice in chapter 6 and verse 5, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every, not some, you know, or occasionally, but that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. No wonder God felt it necessary to step in, to begin this work all over again. You see, the stench of people's sin came up before God, and God remembered their sin. And thus he was about to intervene in the affairs of man, wipe them out and start again, sort of like on a clean slate, if you will. You know, I wonder how close we are to God moving in the same way that he did in the days of Noah today. Think about it. I mean, the scene there during Noah's day certainly parallels us today, our society, our culture. So it is the climax of 120 years of God warning the human race about his judgment unless they turn from their sins. Now, this is also the climax of Noah's faithfulness to preach God's word and build this ark as he was instructed by God to build it in the face of opposition and ridicule. And I want you to think about this for a moment. Put yourself in Noah's shoes, if you will. You know, how strange it must have been you know, the people must have considered Noah out there in the middle of the desert 
building this great ship. And in fact, I don't think it's a stretch of the imagination to think that the people sort of related to it as a form of entertainment. Honey, what do you want to do this weekend? Well, let's go down and watch that crazy guy who's building, you know, that ship in the middle of the desert. And he's talking about something that I've never even heard of before, and that is rain and how that it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. So the people during the days of Noah considered what he was doing as a novelty, as a form of entertainment. You say, how's that? Well, you know, the Bible tells, and I can imagine as the crowds were drawn in, you know, Noah and his sons would put down their hammers and they would stand on the hull of that ship and they would begin to preach concerning the judgment of God, warning the people who came in to see what was going on. But they did not heed the warning. And he would refer to how that God was going to destroy the earth by the flood and how that it was going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. But now here's the question. In chapter 2, in verse 5, in the latter part of verse 5, the Bible tells us there that the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. Interesting. Not caused it to rain upon the earth. And in fact, if you read on there in that text of Scripture, and then it continues to go on, and there was no man to till the ground. Now, what is recorded there has become a matter of debate by many Bible teachers who have suggested, of course, it had rained, you know, before actually God opened up the heavens and then it began to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. And so you have two different camps of thought concerning this particular issue. You know, if you base your interpretation of this verse of Scripture purely by what is recorded for us there in verse 5, where it says, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. No man to till the ground. That would be a reference to, and we could come to the conclusion, that it hadn't rained, that is, before the fall of mankind. After they disobeyed God, and they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if you think about it, prior to the fall of man, They didn't have to work the ground. The ground just produced its fruit on its own, right? So some people belong to and subscribe to the camp that this is a reference to the fact that it hadn't rained, that is, before the fall of man. So that's one possible plausible explanation. And if you you subscribe to that interpretation, they would suggest that the earth at that time, prior to the flood, was covered by sort of like a canopy, and a mist would come forth out of the ground and water it. And that's what we're told in chapter 2 and verse 6, sort of like a terrarium kind of an environment. But it really doesn't matter. All that does matter is that, in fact, when God chose for it to rain upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, that's exactly what it did. And so this is also then the climax of Noah's faithfulness to preach God's word and to build this ark in the face of opposition and ridicule. So now Noah and his family have moved into the ship, and after all the things that had been arranged by God had come to pass, the text then goes on to declare, notice there in verse 16, And God shut the door, and it began 
to reign. You know, in the face of all of the laughter and the mocking and the ridiculing of Noah for what he was doing, right? And then finally, God's word was about to come to pass. And just in case you're thinking, how did all of those animals fit into this ark? Like, you know, some people read this story and they think it's some kind of a children's fable, some kind of a fabrication because they just can't wrap their heads around the idea of all of what God had created, two of every kind, was brought into that ark and remained in that ark for 40 days and 40 nights. I mean, how many animals are we talking about? Well, to answer that question for you, Ernst Mayer, one of America's leading taxonomists, and a taxonomist, just in case you don't know what a taxonomist is, is a biologist that groups organisms into different categories and species. So that's what we're talking about, and that's who this guy is, Ernest Mayer, and provides the following table of the number of animal species that were cited in the book that was written by both Tim LaHaye and John Morris, and the title of that book, the title is The Ark on Ararat. And in that book, he cited that there are, now he's talking about all of the animals that that were created by God that even exist presently. Mammals, 3,700. Birds, 8,600. He goes on, I'm not going to give you any more numbers. I'll just give you the sum total in just a moment. But he goes through the categories of all of the animals that had to be brought into the ship. You got mammals, you got birds, you got reptiles, you have amphibians, you have fishes, you have tunicates, you have echoderms, you have arthropods, you have mollusks, you have worms, you have solenterates, you have sponges, and you have protozoans. And he actually goes through this, I know I killed those words, but if you go through that list, the sum total of all of the animals that were necessary to be brought into that ship were 1 million, okay, 72,000, 300. Now, that's quite a large number of animals to be brought into that ship. And that's the problem that many have with this narrative, with this story, with this record, the instructions that God had given to Noah. And so granted, this is a large number, of course, but then he goes on in his writings to declare that not all of these species had to be upon the ark. Obviously, the fish did not nor did the tunicates, or the etnoderms, or the mollusks, or the solenterites, the sponges, the protozoans, most of the arthropods, and most worms. In fact, simple subtraction brings the previously large number down to approximately 35,000 or 70,000 individual animals, one male and one female. Moreover, although we usually think of large animals when we think of the ark, like, for example, elephants, hippopotamuses, giraffes, most land animals are, in fact, quite small. The average size is less than that of a sheep. And since 240 sheep fit comfortably in an average-sized two-decked railroad car, and since the volume of the ark would have been equal to 569 such cars, Calculations show that the animals to be saved would have fit into approximately 50% of the ark's 
carrying capacity, leaving certainly enough room for people, food, water, and whatever other provisions may have been necessary. And LaHaye and Morris, who wrote this book, who cites this fellow, noted such simple calculations are certainly not beyond the abilities of the scoffers. What does seem to be beyond them is the willingness to try to see if the biblical story is feasible. So there you have it. Now, let me say this. I don't believe this story because of its feasibility, but simply because, listen, God said it. God recorded it for us here in this portion of the Bible. And Jesus himself, in fact, referred to it. In Matthew's gospel in chapter 24, Jesus referred to the days of Noah. And if Jesus made reference to it, money in the bank, folks, all right? But he said in Matthew's gospel in chapter 24 in verses 37 through 39, he says, but as the days of Noah were, so also would the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, the scene that played out during the days of Noah will be the very same scene being played out when Jesus comes back for his church via either the rapture of the church or the second coming of Jesus. The same things would be true of that society and culture in that day. And then he goes on to declare, for as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And so those are just some of the reasons why I believe this narrative to be true and to be accurate. Now, there are a number of lessons for us to be learned here from this text of Scripture. So all of what I've just said sort of serves as the platform for this study. And then that brings us to our first lesson, Our first point, and this is what we want to take away from this narrative. The first thing is that when God shut Noah and his family up in the ark, they were totally secure. And that's our first point, totally secure. That is, I want you to think about this in relationship to our security in Christ. We are totally secure in him. So if you're taking notes, write that down. And I believe what we have here in our narrative is an allegorical picture of the perfect security given when we give our lives to Christ, who is the second ark. Now, we know in the Old Testament there are certain types that point us to Jesus Christ, particularly the items that are in relationship to the tabernacle in the wilderness, And in our series, the book of Exodus, we went through all of those types. And so there are many types, there are many analogies, allegories for us in the Old Testament that point us to Jesus Christ. So I want you to think about that. For God, at that time, it was his provision for the human race, if they would have taken advantage of it. Unfortunately, the only people who did take advantage of it was Noah and his immediate family. But I want you to think about it. That was God's provision for salvation right? And also their provision and a way for them to escape judgment. Now, I want you to think about it in the relationship to Jesus Christ. 
And also back then, there was only one ship. There was only one boat. There wasn't a fleet of boats that they could escape on, right? Or escape the judgment of God, which was to come upon the earth. And that reminds me of what Jesus said about himself. How that he is that same provision, the second ark, if you will, of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father except through me. So there's not many ways to God the Father. Jesus is the only way, even as there was only one ark, there was only one ship, you see. So there are many types and analogies and, and things to be said of the relationship of the ark and the person of Jesus Christ. So anyway, so God's Savior. Now, the rain and raging floods of life come. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about our own security now in Christ Jesus. Think of it in a picturesque kind of a way of what the people were about to experience during the times of the flood. But the rain and the raging floods of life come, don't they? And just because we are members of God's family, one of God's kids, you know, we're not exempt from life's problems and difficulties and struggles and, and such. But praise God, you know, we have the confidence and hope that all things work together for good. God has a purpose and a plan. He doesn't allow anything to come into the lives of his kids without a specific purpose in mind. And that purpose always is for good. There's always a purpose and a reason. Whereas a non-believer, there's no rhyme or reason, you know, for things going on in their lives, good or bad or whatever. It's just, you know, a roll of the dice. It's just a crapshoot. You can't make heads or tails sometimes of the things that are going on in, a, in the life of a person who is a non-believer. But we have that hope that all things work together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. So we're not exempt from life's problems and difficulties and struggles. So the rain and raging floods of life come. But listen, nothing can touch those who have been sealed in the ark of Jesus Christ. In a way, we're sort of like bulletproof, really. Notice God didn't say to Noah, okay, Noah, it's time for the rain to come. I want you to get your family into the ship. I want you to shut the door. I want you to get your sons, the big guys, to help you slide the door shut. And don't forget to throw the lock and safety bolt no, he didn't say that at all. He didn't put the safety of his children in the hands of other people. And neither does he as it relates to you and to me. He shuts us in. He envelops us. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 3, and verse 7, in describing himself concerning Jesus, he says, It is he that opens, and no man shuts, and shuts, and no man opens. Father's house, there's a place for me in my Father's house, where I long to be, oh my heart. Here at In My Father's House, we're going through the book of Genesis, where the story of the beginning is told. God made light and said that it's good. God made plants and trees and said that it's good. God made animals on land and in the sea, and he said that it's good. And then God made man, and he said that it is very good. 
Creation didn't stop at the end of the sixth day. Creating is an inherent part of who God is and what He does. Look around you. What do you see? New plants, new trees, new animals, each one unique in how it grows. And God is still saying it is good. God is in the business of creating new people out of old ones, undoing the inherent brokenness. When you were born again, a new creation, God looked at you and said that you are very good. He has made you new and restored you to the place you were designed to fill. You've been listening to In My Father's House with Pastor Mike Venizio. This is a ministry out of Harvest Christian Fellowship in Midtown Manhattan. We'd love to see you here. You can find all the information you need, including service times, on our website, harvestnyc.org. That's harvestnyc.org. If you're listening outside of Manhattan, we'd love to know that, too. Please send us a quick note at harvestnyc at verizon.net. That's harvestnyc at verizon.net. It's a great encouragement to Pastor Mike and the team at In My Father's House to hear where these messages are being listened to. We hope you'll come back and see us again, because there's no better place to be than in my father's house.